0: In 1986, the first treatment program in the United States specifically for non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI for short, opened its doors. Self-abuse finally ends, better known as Safe Alternatives was a 30-day inpatient program for the treatment of NSSI. Only the behavior wasn't called NSSI back then, and it wasn't well understood. So what did treatments look like back then, and how did Safe Alternatives differ from other interventions? How has treatment evolved over time and what does it look like now? To answer these questions and to give an inside take on the original debate about how self-injury should be referenced, whether as NSSI, deliberate self-harm, self-mutilation, or some other term, I am joined today from Ocala, Florida by co-founder and retired clinical director of Safe Alternatives, Dr. Wendy Lader. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee at the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or I-S-S-S, or simply I-Triple-S. i came across safe alternatives when I was in graduate school and looking for resources and publications on self-injury. Both were extremely limited at the time. In my search, I found and quickly read the 1998 book entitled Bodily Harm, the Breakthrough Healing Program for Self-Injurers, which describes the Safe Alternatives program and its approach, which was revolutionary at the time. As a grad student, imagine my excitement when the book's co-author and co-founder of Safe Alternatives, Dr. Wendy Later, was scheduled to speak at a conference I was volunteering at in Arlington, Virginia. I've said before that I've always been one of those guys who often lingers after presentations in order to meet the presenter and ask more questions, so of course I did. I have been fortunate enough to keep in touch with Dr. Later through ITRS over the years, of which she is a founding member. Dr. Later has been on television many times, including the Today Show, Dateline NBC, Good Morning America, the Oprah Winfrey Show, CNN, 2020, and Geraldo, among many others. She's an international speaker on self-injury, highly regarded as an expert in the field, and her workshops and seminars draw hundreds of professionals. She currently limits her practice to accelerated resolution therapy in Ocala, Florida. A couple notes on today's episode. First, we'll be doing a giveaway of Dr. Lader's book at the end of next month, January 2023, so stay tuned at the end of the episode to learn how to win a free copy. Second, today's episode includes a sensitive conversation with emotionally heavy content, real-life stories, and discussion about severe forms of self-injury, some of which are also mentioned in her book. With Dr. Leiter's permission, I've edited out a number of these examples because they're a bit graphic, but a couple still remain to illustrate her points about the severe types of behaviors she commonly addressed in the program. I do my best to be mindful of how statements could come across to listeners, always trying to touch on important topics without carelessly triggering anyone. It can be difficult to balance and edit certain episodes at times, and this is not to say that less severe forms of self-injury merit less attention or are a focus of comparison in any way. For example, what you'll hear Dr. Later, reference as delicate self-injury, I prefer to call superficial, moderate self-injury. Self-injury in any form deserves our full empathy, compassion, validation, and understanding. But today specifically, if you're having a rough day, give us a pause and come back to listen when you're ready. We'll be here. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Later.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
0: I'm really excited to interview you because you've been in this field longer than almost anyone, along with Dr. Walsh that we interviewed (laughs) earlier (laughs) last year. What got you first interested in treating self-injury?
1: The funny thing is, I wasn't interested at all. I was the director of a women's program, and actually that was the first women's program, inpatient women's program in the country as well. And I was very happy doing my 1970s beatnik hippie kind of thing with women and understanding the difference of their issues versus male issues and whatever have you. But Karen Contario, who was in the substance abuse field, had to do a group. She was getting a certificate in group therapy and somebody that she knew had worked with self-injurers and was interested in including or doing some kind of a program for self-injurers. And she was very interested in doing that as well. And so she looked, she she was the first one to be on a television show about it. And she contacted the Chicago Tribune because this was back in those days, nobody knew about self-injury and anybody who was doing it thought they were absolutely crazy. They were hospitalized for a long, periods of time, sometimes years at a time. So she went to the Chicago Tribune and they were very interested because they had never heard of this. And so she had an article done on it. Then she and Dr. Showalter were on the Phil Donahue show back then. And they got literally, we didn't have internet back then. So it was literally hundreds if not thousands of letters and phone calls about it. And realized that there are people out there suffering in silence. So Dr. Showalter decided that he wanted to include, he was the director of Park Grove Hospital and wanted to be able to include treatment specifically for the treatment of self-injury. So Karen started an outpatient group and it blossomed. She said, be careful what you wish for because she only had one at first and then she ended up with 20. Then they decided to develop this program. And they wanted to put it within the women's program because at that time, it wasn't known that that males would do this also. It was mainly considered a female issue or a way of behaving. And it was considered a crazy way of behaving. And we can talk more about that and the differences over time, how this is viewed. But back then, as I said, people were institutionalized. So the SAFE program was developed as Self Abuse Finally Ends, specifically to deal with this. Since Karen had been in the substance abuse field, she wanted to make it shorter term, the same way substance abuse was 30 days. That was considered crazy, okay, by most of the professional public, because this was such a crazy behavior, such contraindicated behavior for survival, you know. We're from a young age. We're taught you don't t- you touch a stove and you back away from it. So this is really totally against human human nature or anything that's actually alive. We all avoid pain. So the idea that some people go towards pain seemed counterintuitive and crazy. And as I said, so they were hosp- They were actually institutionalized. And when we first opened our program. I was really very skeptical because of everything that I had learned about this behavior. Most of my clients were, yes, they were hospitalized, but it was mainly for depression, for having been abused in some way. And I didn't know if the two groups would mesh. I was a little bit concerned about inviting, you know, not just having one or two people who happened to self-injure, but actually inviting a whole program for self-injury. I wasn't sure how we were going to contain the behaviors on an inpatient unit. But Karen convinced me that it was doable along the models of a substance abuse program. And so we developed the program and I was very, very impressed with it. And I said, this is worth giving it a whirl. And so we did, we opened it up. And most of our folks who came to us at the time had been institutionalized for years we were getting people from Canada paid for by the Canadian government because they couldn't handle them in their institutions, in their federal institutions for people who had been committed, even people who had just been voluntarily admitted to hospitals. They could not contain them on the unit. So they were sending all of their highest risk clients to us. And believe it or not, we were able to contain it. And there are some very, very differences. So this was a seminal event, okay, in the history of self injury. And I'm very proud that Karen convinced me that this was doable, because it really did change, it started changing. And this was before Marsha Lanahan had even written dialectical behavior therapy, her first book on dialectical behavior therapy. And Dr. Lanahan at the time was not supporting inpatient hospitalization for people who self-injured. And I basically agree with her because I think most hospitals are not prepared to deal with self-injury. They look at the behavior rather than the function. Nobody was really looking at the function. They just looked at it as a crazy behavior and were looking for other things behind that, not really paying attention to the behavior. We were the first ones to look at the behavior in conjunction with other psychiatric Issues that might be going on at the time and the reason for it. So we created a 30-day program, and actually they had to work their way into the program. In most hospitals, clients had to convince you how sick they were, that they were suicidal, that they were going to kill somebody or themselves. Usually with self injures, it's themselves, not anyone else, to get in. And then in order to stay in the hospital. They have to convince you that they're dangerous. So there was no motivation for them to stop this behavior or look at it and stop because they wanted the treatment and they were scared to be out on their own oftentimes. So we made it so they had to work their way into the program. They had to come of their own volition. Their parents, their loved ones could not have them come for them, could not commit them to us. They had to agree that they wanted to. So if they told us that they were suicidal, we would say, you know, you might have to go into the hospital for suicidality first, and then come to our program for the self-injury. I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not that suicidal, because they had to sign a contract that they wouldn't self-injure while they were in the program. We didn't want to do this outpatient because they didn't have 24-hour support, but inpatient, they would have our 24-hour support and the support of their peers. So we wanted them to recognize that if they could survive for the 30 days and also use language rather than behavior to let us know what was going on, then they could get better. They could find out that they could survive without it.
0: Wow. So to be a part of this program, they had to commit to not self-injuring during those 30 days that they would be there?
1: We got a lot of hate mail about that. How could you possibly punish somebody for coming into a program for self-injury and then punishing them? The thing is, we weren't trying to punish anybody. We were trying to rec- you know, help them recognize that there are other ways to cope. And we were going to provide that intense support that they needed to be able to do that. Nobody questioned whether people should be able to go to a substance abuse program and drink until they didn't feel like it, they needed it anymore. So it's it was interesting that there was a fragility here. They believed that clients who self-injured were so fragile that they couldn't possibly survive. You know, how could you possibly? They're too damaged. You can't possibly ask them to do this. We were strength based. We believed that they absolutely could.
0: What about those cases that I know? also still occur today like in inpatient programs where there might be this power struggle of someone still wanting to self-injure and finding whatever implement that they can while they're in an inpatient program and self-injuring and then the staff trying to stop them. How did you deal with that or how was it dealt with in a safe alternatives program?
1: That was a great question because this was another thing we did radically opposed and different than anyone had done before. We didn't protect them. And the hospital president was beside himself because the legal problem for psychologists and psychiatrists and inpatients is keeping your clients safe. So the first thing you do is take away shoelaces, you take away your you take away anything that they could, you give them plastic knives and forks. We decided we weren't gonna do that. Now, let me say that we didn't just have these things like totally just lying around. But our basic premise was that. We wanted to stay out of the power struggle. And we gave the message was the only person who really can keep you safe is you. So if you're struggling with that and you're having a problem, come to us and let us know. And we can see what we can do to help you from that. But in art therapy, they were able to use scissors. They were able to use pens and pencils and all the other things that many hospitals who had people on suicide watch, which basically self-injurers were on all the time, But not in our program. We had remarkably few incidents. Usually it was things to test us. It would be like a little bit Nick, you know, they could have done a lot more, but they didn't. And it was very, very, very rare for us to have severe incidents of self injury. Much rarer than it would have been on any other. Actually, they used to regale us with stories about what they used to do on other units because these folks are really smart. They could figure out. And it's one of the reasons I love working with them, because they would tell us how they figured out ways to be able to hurt themselves, even though. And it was became a game because everybody was telling them they were going to keep them safe and keep these things. And so they found ways, all kinds of things. We took the power struggle out of it.
0: Well, I'm wondering if they had to commit to 30 days of no self-injury to be part of the program, and then they self-injured while they're in the program. It sounds like there was still grace for those moments.
1: Yes, there was one chance.
0: (laughs) So it was one chance. And if they did it a second time?
1: Yeah, the first chance they had to convince us that they still should stay in the program. So they had to write something about why we should keep them in the program after having self-injured and what they would do differently if they're allowed to stay in the program. And most of the time they did a pretty good job of that. Very few people really wanted to leave. We were the first place they had been. Our average client had been hospitalized 30 times, I think, the, I can't remember the statistics, but it was something like 30 times before they came to us. And they said we were the first place that treated them like responsible people, that they were people, not crazy people. <laughs> so they didn't want to leave they finally met other people like them they had a supportive peer group they had people who were actually doing therapy and not just focusing on how the craziness of it and trying to just get them to stop it really wasn't about getting them to stop the self-injury our motto was you have a choice to feel or not to feel self-injury is a choice not to feel Okay. You want to medicate, you want to self medicate it, like taking heroin or a drink or whatever it might be. You're self medicating. And we're asking you not to do that because you can feel these feelings and not be engulfed by them. And we're going to show you how.
0: I like that emphasis on using language rather than behavior, being able to communicate and identify how they feel versus acting on.
1: Yes. So it wasn't a focus on the self-injury. The program was a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and more dynamically oriented therapy, because we did care about the genesis, not just the black box. We really did want to understand what feelings, and generally we discovered or my feeling was from all the clients. And I probably at that time, maybe even today, saw more self-injurers than anyone else in the world. And I say that, or maybe Barry Walsh, but our program was specifically for self-injury. So the only clients we treated were self-injurers. And so we had, I don't know, years before we ended, we had passed our 2000 mark and it was way more than that. And I did a lot of the individual therapy and group therapy, so I had a lot of experience and really recognized that there was always something behind that they didn't. And and there was oftentimes a feeling that they had decided at a young age that they weren't going to have. For some people, it might be being vulnerable. I'm never going to be vulnerable. Some people, it was from families. Somebody was angry and they just all the time and rageful and they conflated anger and violence together. And so we wanted them to understand that anger is a feeling and everybody has those feelings and it's okay. So we wanted to know what it was, what feeling in particular from them was the hardest. And then we had all these writing assignments and we had individualized writing assignments for them as well.
0: Safe Alternatives is still in existence today, correct?
1: It, and it's a mere figment of its former self. Okay. Karen and I bequeathed Safe to Michelle Sealiner, who was our COO and worked with us for decades, tirelessly. She was fabulous. So we gave it to her. She just has an outpatient, so the people who worked inpatient now work outpatient with her and she has an outpatient clinic in St. Louis, Missouri. We would have loved to have kept, the program was very successful, and that's where managed care comes in and insurance payments come in.
0: So they started limiting how many sessions or how intense the treatment could be for an individual?
1: The length of treatment more than any, well, it wasn't even that. They wouldn't even allow them to come in the first, unless they were saying they were imminently suicidal, which we could make a case for. Honestly, without, with no insurance fraud, because a lot of these folks, but even then we had one girl, she was very religious. She had no desire to kill herself, but she could have died from her form of self-injury. And she was only like 13, 14 years old. And the insurance company said she's not suicidal. So they weren't going to pay for it. I got blacklisted. From the insurance company for a while because I had suggested that they talk to a lawyer who they didn't have any money but somebody picked up their case and won mm. so she was able to come to the program and did well but this is what we were up against it was very very difficult and 30 days it's very interesting is when we started insurance companies would say how could you possibly help and do anything in only only 30 days We felt that we could do it in 30 days, even though everybody else, so it wasn't for the insurance money, we could have kept people for years, right? We didn't because we felt that this was institutionalizing people unwarranted, they didn't need this. We didn't believe that they were actually crazy that this behavior had a function. So we were the first people to limit hospitalization. But then when we stayed with what we've said all along, they said, how could you possibly expect us to do 30 days? We wanted our clients to know from the very beginning how much time they have, at the beginning, a middle, and an end, how much time they had. And even if they petitioned, they could petition for an extra week, not to say for world peace and everything. It had to be very specific. I would like for my mom and I to work on talking to each other before I leave. That could be done maybe in a week. We could have some family sessions. So we were very consistent in what we did, but the insurance changed. And so then, you know, with managed care, they'd give you two or three days at a time. So our clients never knew when they were gonna get kicked out, which totally was defeating the purpose and the whole philosophy of our program. Our program was very well thought out. I can explain everything, why we did it, how we did it, and what the consequence of not doing it that way could be. But insurance companies didn't care about that. They only cared about the payment and making sure that they needed inpatient program. But we really felt the holding environment of an inpatient unit for 30 days was necessary for them to recognize that they weren't going to explode. I always said that I've never seen a patient's head explode, but I've been waiting my whole career for that. Never saw it. <laughs> Thankfully, I never. I know I will never see that. So. Karen and I used to call it, name that, that inpatient stay. I can cure that patient in five days. No, I can do it in four. No, I can do it in three. We were acknowledging that we couldn't. So we tried it between half inpatient two weeks and then half outpatient within a community group home kind of setting. And it was okay. I still, to this day, don't think it was as good as having because that's what we would do inpatient. We would have them do inpatient for 30 days and then go for a couple of weeks outpatient transition. We had one mother say to us, how could you possibly let my daughter out after 30 days? She's been self-injuring in such extreme ways and she's an alcoholic and she was a drug addict. She's been doing this for years and years and years. And we said, we are, that's our program. We're letting her out. That was like 35 years ago, maybe. To this day, she she's still drug-free, alcohol-free and self-injury-free.
0: Wow. And with the managed care, I get it when like in the 80s and before people could just keep individuals institutionalized for however long they wanted yeah. and insurance would just pay for it. And then they introduced more of this time limited and they're not going to pay for it just because. But in this case, you were very intentional in ending after 30 days and then maybe switching to outpatient versus continuing indefinitely like a lot of these other programs were, and they were docking you in the program because of that.
1: Well, back in the beginning, they weren't. In the beginning, we had no problems with it. We took Medicare clients, Medicare paid, all insurance company paid, because it was saving them millions of dollars a year. So they were happy to do it. But then, because believe it, you see you're young, you forget, people who are younger don't even realize that there was a time before managed care. This was a time before managed care. Yeah, Yeah, and even we were a time before, we did this before managed care. So we were doing this when we could have gotten easily years of treatment, and we didn't do that. Mm We honestly were honest. We did what we actually believe was in the best interest of the client.
0: And I think the irony, though, too, with the managed care is that they would only allow you to treat individuals who are suicidal, which you opened the program for those who were engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. Of course, we didn't have That's that term right. way back then. But
1: and I fought against that term. Oh,
0: you did? Why?
1: I did. I had an argument with Matt Nock mainly about it. <laughs> yeah, because... I felt like there was a confluence. you know, I understand research wise in particular, the uh-huh. difference, but I was worried about insurance. I was worried that people would not get the care they needed because these people did have a lot of suicidal ideation and they could absolutely turn to suicide when self-injury didn't happen. And it could happen in a split second. So I felt that it shouldn't be separated so definitively. Because we didn't get any clients who weren't suicidal. Now, because it's so much more common and so much more prevalent, you do see a number of self-injurers who really absolutely don't want to commit suicide, have never wanted to commit suicide, really want to stay alive. But everybody that we got, these people have been hospitalized and institutionalized. Everyone had attempted suicide severely many on numerous occasions. So we knew the dangers. Yeah.
0: Do you have a preferred term for it? Or are you okay with the term non-suicidal self-injury now?
1: Well, that's, I can't really totally, I tried to fight the system. And I, I was glad that I had a seat at the table to at least say what I thought, but I didn't win. And, and I've got to admit, Matt Nock is a powerful adversary. And I understand from a research point of view And why you can say non-suicidal self-injury and also have suicidal and be suicidal at the same time. I just thought it was so it was more of a continuum of the same thing. And I didn't want to see it divided. I understand it. I do. Mm -hmm. But I think exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. And that's insurance stopped paying for it pretty much.
0: I know he has used the term self injurious thoughts and behaviors, and I wonder if that's a better term in the sense that it captures both suicidal and non suicidal self injury or self harm as well.
1: And that's what we did. We used that, you know, people were using the term self mutilation. Armando Favaza wrote a book on self mutilation, and we changed that. We didn't, we thought that was way too graphic a term, and they weren't trying to mutilate themselves. They're just trying to feel better. So deliberate self harm was. A term that Kim Gratz used that was fine just self-injury we just use the term self-injury and then when all these young whippersnappers researchers came in <laughs> who were it was my dream come true actually that all of and I was lucky enough to be invited by Janice you know as one of the first people to be in in the I triple s was one of the, the founding members of it and to see all these fabulous research as young with all these great ideas. And the research, I was like a kid in a candy store. And it was my it was everything that I'd hoped would happen. So I'm really not trying to knock it in way, shape or form. But clinically, there was a difference between research and my clinical experience and my worried for clients about what would happen to them.
0: Yeah, we do know, based on all of this research that those young whippersnappers (laughs) back then were doing, (laughs) uh, we find that non-suicidal self-injury is a robust risk factor for later attempting suicide. So there is that relationship much of the time. And I knew that
1: all along, but then I thought, well, I had to buy a sample. I had to buy a sample because they were all inpatient and day hospital kinds of clients. So that was very, I had some of my outpatient, but usually they had gone through my program first. So I, I understand all of that. But at the time, I still believed that it was so conflated that it was a risk factor, high risk factor for it, that I didn't want it to be taken off the table. I really still to this day see it pretty much as a continuum in behavior.
0: Well, with the new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, particularly the fifth edition that most Uh recently came out, there's that proposed diagnosis of NSSI disorder, non-suicidal self-injury disorder. It's not a current diagnosis. It's just one that requires further research and further study. But do you think that would be useful in terms of insurance reimbursement?
1: I hope so, but I don't know. Because sometimes it's it's non-suicidal in the name of it. Mm-hmm. So, And we know from the description I gave you of that one child, and this was quite a long time ago, who was absolutely going to kill herself one of these times. Somebody wasn't going to find her and she was going to die. But she denied that she was suicidal up and down. So basically, I'm not going to commit insurance fraud. I was very honest about it. I said she's got a high risk for suicide. I mean, I had people jump off of balconies. They didn't necessarily want to kill themselves, but they were going to do great damage to themselves. But they weren't trying to commit suicide. And I just think the two have to be put together for insurance purposes. When somebody has that high risk, but you can't call it suicidal ideation or suicidal intent when it's not. So it's non. So by the definition, it's non-suicidal ideation. If we had just said deliberate self-harm, which included suicide. As a sub, I rather see under the, the realm of deliberate self harm and that there's a continuum from picking your nails and picking at your face or pulling a couple of hairs or whatever, which doesn't warrant hospitalization, might even not even warrant treatment to things that the person is saying they're not suicidal, but could result very easily high risk, high risk for, for death in what they're doing.
0: I think at the end of the day, uh, most people that I talk to that experience suicidal thoughts or have attempted suicide and or engage in deliberate self-harm such as non-suicidal self-injury, they don't necessarily want to die or they don't necessarily want to hurt themselves. It's just that they want to stop suffering or find relief from the emotional pain that they might experience most people that I've treated that have attempted suicide it's not that they wanted to die they just didn't want to keep suffering in the way and I think I see that a lot yes with those who self-injure as well
1: that's exactly you just hit the nail on the head that most people don't want to die if they weren't in such excruciating emotional pain they wouldn't want to die they want to die as a, a secondary to all the emotional pain they're in There's no difference to me between, and we also have a lot of research that tells us that self-injury is also a gateway because you need more and more for this. It's like a drug. You need more and more for the same effect. And after a while, it stops working to the point where they're numbed. And then they'll be self-injuring to feel something because they're not feeling anything. And they could die then because they don't even realize sometimes how deeply they've cut.
0: Yeah, this is a, an intense conversation, I think, probably for people listening. that. So I, I always have to remind myself and pull myself back. I know this is kind of our, our day-to-day work, but it can be really intense for some people. So for those listening, if you need a break, you can pause, come back to it. We'll be here. We'll continue our conversation and In line with that, I'll probably move a little bit away from that and go back to the Safe Alternatives program, the 30 days, and then how it's now shifted to more of an intensive outpatient program because of managed care. We still have residential programs. And I know when I've referred individuals to residential treatment, oftentimes It's only for 30 days now. So do you think there's still or there could be a place for, we could call it a 30-day inpatient program for self-injury or we could call it a residential program for self-injury. Do you think there's a place for that today still, even with managed care?
1: That's my hope. I mean, I would love to see this come back to fruition because I still believe the same thing I believed when we first started this, that that is the appropriate amount of time that's needed and necessary for this kind of treatment. And I also want to uh, say to your audience that I too recognize that I was working with Very, very severe populations because I was doing inpatient at a time where many of these people had been hospitalized and institutionalized prior to coming us. But the vast majority of people who self-injure do what we call delicate self-injury, which is sort of minor cutting and burning. I still think it's very important to pay attention to. I think it's very serious, but I just wanted to say that most of you, that's going to be your experience. Very few of you will see what I saw in my professional history.
0: And no one needs to prove how much emotional pain they are in in by how severely they self-injure. They all deserve the attention that we give them. Absolutely. I'm interested in this intensive treatment because I've toyed around with the idea of maybe starting a program and wondering... If we're talking about the evolution of treatment over time with self-injury, you began the Safe Alternatives in 1986, and here we are at the end of 2022 and going right into 2023, wondering the utility of opening a new program, because there's just so few of them in the US. We have Safe Alternatives, and we have the program in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, through Mm -hmm. Amita Health, formerly Alexian Brothers. Right. Those are the only two I know of. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why. Why is that?
1: I think from the reasons that I talked about, that it's hard to be able to keep a program specifically for self-injury because the insurance is so difficult. And I have to also say that there are problems now. A lot of self-injurers, especially adult self-injurers, don't have good insurance. Mm. We used to be able to take Medicare for that 30 days and insurance would pay for it. Now, sometimes, as many of your listeners will know, there can be a $10,000 deductible to just get in the door. So how are they going to, you know, a lot of families can't possibly do that. So I think it is getting, I think the appropriate level of care is being denied, in my opinion, yeah. is being denied for many folks who could truly benefit rather than going, you of remember that people are self-injuring for the two years they're in outpatient treatment or whatever it might be for them to finally get to the point where they, and for many people it's gonna be less. But oftentimes outpatient takes longer than if you've got an intensive inpatient program. And our feeling was every time they're self-injuring is one day too much because they're ignoring their feelings and they're self-medicating, which is creating all kinds of interpersonal problems for them. So I I felt like it was imperative that if we could do this in 30 days, it would be cost effective in the long run. And it would be the humane thing to do that people who are putting scars on their body for the rest of their life don't have to do that.
0: Did you collect follow-up data and check in with some? I know some of them reach out to you to this day. Did you and Karen Contario follow up people to see how effective the program was in reducing and ceasing self-injury?
1: Yes, we did. And it was very high. As a matter of fact, we collected a whole bunch of data and we collected a year follow-up. We didn't get as much follow-up because a lot of people moved and whatever. But we did get a tremendous amount of follow-up and enough to do some research. And actually, Matt Knock had one of his interns also. I never published it just because, like you, when I was working, I was working like 80 hours a week. And it was just really difficult for me to write. And even the book that we wrote, we had some help with because there was no way I could do what I was doing and seeing as many patients as I was seeing being director of the program. There was just no way I had time for that. I was working like crazy, crazy hours. But I'm trying, you know, actually, I should have looked this up before I came because it's been years since I've looked at it, but it was in the 80 plus percent range of significant reductions and abstinence was not uncommon at all. It was very com- it was more common than not for pure for total abstinence from self injury.
0: And this is taking into account the fact that most of these individuals had been hospitalized. You said up to thirty times inpatient for the behavior. I shouldn't say
1: up to thirty times. That was sort of an average.
0: The average of thirty times.
1: We had patients hospitalized for unbelievable amounts of times, mm. hundreds.
0: So any reduction is significant.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was really phenomenal what we did, both anecdotally and through the research we had. In the book, we talk about some of the the people we had. One of them, as I was telling you earlier, I had one person who was in our book who came to us with blood alcohol level of 0.40. She was extremely severe self injure had been institutionalized. She did drugs, she did, she picked up anything. The first thing she did when you got in a room is find out what she could use to hurt herself. We saw her, we had her in the program and she left. She graduated from the program. But when we put her into the outpatient, it wasn't outpatient, it was a group home for our partial hospitalization program. Her mother pleaded with us not to do that. She said, there's no way she's gonna be able to succeed. She's gonna kill herself, it's really too dangerous. We did it because we felt that's what we needed to do and that she was ready for it. And she graduated from the program. She was able to be in that outpatient setting. And then she left and went home. And that was probably 35 years ago. And she contacts me on her what she calls her birthday every year, which is the day she graduated from the program. And she has been abstinent from drugs, alcohol, and self-injury since that day.
0: That's amazing.
1: And that's not an unusual story, by the way. I had another client who had set herself up. I know I'm going to some graphic ones. The point is that if you can deal with this graphic kinds of self injury, people have been doing this severely for years and they can get better, then certainly people who are doing more delicate self injury have a very, you know, like 100% chance that they can get better. Okay. So I had another client and she thought that she could never possibly have what everybody else had. She was never going to have the kind of life that other people had. And I got a letter. Remember, we didn't have email. I got a letter. <laughs> from her showing a picture of her husband and her two children and that she was she said you kept telling me I could have this and I didn't believe it and here I am never knew what happiness was until now.
0: And these are powerful stories. I know I had talked to Dr. Barry Walsh in episode 12 and the atypical severe mm-hmm. self-injury where these are some of those atypical severe forms of self-injury and even individuals who engage in that can live fulfilling yes. lives. Yeah, I think that's a hopeful message. And-
1: Absolutely. Where there's life, there's hope. I do believe, as I said in one of my videos, the resiliency of the human spirit, And it's one of the reasons I love working with this particular population because it was either they were going to be institutionalized or they were going to get better back then. And I opted for getting better and believing that they could. Before that, the train of thought was that they would always be sick and they would never really get better. We could minimize some of the damage, but they weren't really going to be able to live productive lives. And Karen and I didn't believe that that was true. Thank goodness.
0: And you've shared some of these stories in your book, which was published in 1998, mm-hmm. and here we are, pushing 2023. You started the program 1986. I remember in college and graduate school looking for materials, mm-hmm. research on the topic before it was called non-suicidal self Long self-injury. time before. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, And I couldn't find anything. I did find your book and I remember reading through it in grad school and even citing it in my dissertation because there wasn't Correct. a whole lot of things to cite. And some of these stories, I remember vaguely of what you're referencing mm-hmm. now and to hear that they're still doing just as well as they were after.
1: Absolutely. I just heard from that woman that I just told you about about a month or two ago. And she still she re- reiterates every time. So I know I'm not doing anything. I'm still sober and whatever. She went through a lot of life changes, a lot of problems, people dying in her, and she got through it without resorting Mm -hmm. to Mm self-injury. Wow. Very proud of her for the work she did.
0: Well, thinking about when you first opened safe alternatives and here we are going on 40 years later and thinking about how the treatment has evolved the evolution of treatment for self-injury what have you noticed has shifted aside from managed care specifically i guess here in the u.s but just in general what has shifted in the evolution of treatment for self-injury well first
1: of all there's a lot more outpatient support now um, Marshall lanahan's program on dialectical behavior therapy is used in many many clinics and hospitals around the country now So that there are more treatment options to help people when they first start self-injuring to be able to understand the function and their thinking behind it and be able to change the way they what they attribute to their self-injury, how they think about it, how they think about when they're sad, being able to identify their feelings and being able to change their attributions about them, which is fabulous to have all that outpatient support because there was none really when we started this. There's just a lot more knowledge now and understanding. There's less fear among practitioners about self-injury. Again, when I first started, nobody wanted to see self People hadn't seen people who self-injured. And to be perfectly honest, most of our clients told me that they'd never told their outpatient mm. therapist, unless they were so severe they were going in and out of the hospital, they, they had to know. But if they could hide it, they were hiding it because... They were so terrified about what people would think even what psychologists would think now that's not the problem anymore karen and i were the first people to do media on this and it's a double-edged sword on one hand people were so grateful because they thought they were alone and they didn't know there was anyone there was anything that was neat with it, what this was on the other hand more people heard about it and thought oh maybe i'll try it you know i don't know and i still don't know. And I do a lot of soul searching on that. What do you do in in the age of social media or even just TV? Do you let people know about this? Do you not? On one hand, I'm glad I did because all of this research came out of it and people are no longer having to suffer in silence. They can get treatment. So I think that's changed substantially. And as I said before, the advent of real research, not just clinicians doing some inpatient small sample studies but people like Janice Whitlock, who did the seminal study on college students, you know, healthy college students, and found information on people who were self-injuring who had never been in the system or never, nobody knew that they had been self-injuring. And here they were, Cornell and other Ivy League students, doing very well, but suffering at the same time in silence. So we've learned so much over the years, and I'm so glad I've lived long enough to see the transformation take place.
0: Regarding your comment about the media, I remember our conversation, we, you and I discussed that, I think it was at lunch at I in Eau Claire, Wisconsin in 2016, and I remember that was obviously made a mark on me just thinking about the role of media and how it can help people. And this podcast, I think about, I want to be able to support people and not perpetuate any stigma or trigger anyone that might struggle with absolutely. self-injury when having these difficult conversations. So it's finding that balance. I think about that a lot too.
1: Yes, Absolutely.
0: What do you believe is next in the field of self-injury treatment and intervention at this point?
1: I think what's next is continuing parental education. I know Janice Whitlock was very much into that at one point and has written a great book on that. And more and more people are. Jennifer Muhlenkamp has done work with parents, and I did some work with parents in schools on this kind of treatment. So that when they first tell somebody that those people can have a reaction that's going to be helpful for them so that they can learn more about it. Because parents often their first reaction, even loving parents, their first reaction is sometimes to punish. If you continue doing this, I'm going to take things away from you and things rather than understanding that your child's in pain and they don't know what to do and and they're coming to you for some help and they need some guidance so i think more research on how to present and how to get this information to parents and more even into schools and school psychologists so that the first responders basically who learn that their child is self-injuring or an adult is self-injuring that they have and there's a lot of information also now in europe they train lay people not to be psychologists and therapists but to deal with loneliness So they have benches now that they set up. A person can sit there and somebody who's lonely can come up to them and sit with them and have somebody to talk to. And they're finding that that is a lot of the underlying issues of a sense of alienation, a sense of being alone, a sense of frustration, a sense of not being able to explore or express feelings. If they have somebody like that, and a lot of these kids have friends. But they don't have friends necessarily who are wise enough or mature enough to be able to listen with that third ear, you know, yeah. to be able to really listen. So I think there are all kinds of possible treatments that maybe even outside of the scope of professional therapy, because it's harder to access that and it's very expensive, that we need to look into those kinds of programs as well.
0: Thinking about your comment with regard to parents, one thing I recommend to parents, and I'll actually ask you in just a second to close things out, is that if you had a bad response the first time, maybe a negative reaction, it just took you by surprise, and you're not proud of it, and it maybe caused a rift between you and your child that, it's okay to apologize and do a do-over.
1: Absolutely. And I have a lot of parents who did just that. They're wonderful people. And they just said, I blew it. I just, I was taken by surprise and I just didn't know what to do. And I had a, a human reaction to it. And I and that's how I labeled it. It was a human reaction. And it's also human to be able to make a mistake and be able to tell your child that you are there to listen to them.
0: Thank you. So based on our conversation today, wrapping things up, talking about the evolution of self-injury treatment and safe alternatives, what would you recommend to parents? I know you already shared some. If there's anything additional you'd like to share.
1: Well, there are some good books out there. You've had a lot of those people on your podcast, so they might be aware of them already. Mm-hmm. And I can't, you know, you could probably list them faster than I can at this point, because my, my memory is not what it used to be. But there are some very good, some books out there for parents to learn about self-injury and how to interact and how to be prepared for a conversation with your child. And you don't want to or have to be their therapist, but just knowing that they're loved in spite, you know, of their self-injury, their self-injury is what they're doing to try to survive. And it's not geared towards you. It's a coping strategy. And if you can view it as such, it's easier to have some empathy for what they're going through.
0: And I think with regard to the books, We've done book giveaways on the podcast earlier, including Janice Whitlock's and Elizabeth Lloyd Richardson's book for parents. I think maybe we'll do one for your book, one of the earliest books, 1998. <laughs> So I'll figure out a way for us to do a giveaway for <laughs> listeners. Usually it's a positive review, five star review, and sending me a screenshot through Instagram or Twitter. So I may do that. But yeah, we'll we'll be sure to link to that in the episode. Yeah, and, as well. and
1: Janice and Elizabeth's book is quite good. So yeah, yeah, ours was written a long time ago, but it can give you it does explore a little bit about what I was talking about today, about what our program includes and the fact that these people in, in the book are better, you know, and they were very severe. Yeah. So anyone can get better, especially those who are just dabbling in it or just starting it.
0: Absolutely. Well, based on our conversation today about the evolution of self-injury treatment and safe alternatives, what would you recommend to professionals, other clinicians and researchers?
1: Well, I think professionals need to listen to podcasts like this, and then when they find a speaker that speaks to them, you know, that they like what they're hearing, to go and get their book and learn more about it. And actually, if they're very interested in treating this population, they might want to join the ISS, the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury because that's where you get the latest and greatest research updated before it gets hot off the presses, even before it comes to the presses. And then you get, it's so small at this point still, that you get to meet the top people in the field, and not only see them up on the stage, but get to actually talk to them at the welcoming parties and things like that. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I really encourage you to do that if you're a professional.
0: What a a nice plug for ILSS that we didn't even ask you to do. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be meeting in Vienna, Austria in 2023, June 21st through 23rd. I know we have a lot of listeners in Europe that can probably more easily make it there, but it's very nominal registration fees and membership fees. So yeah. And
1: Vienna is a great city. So if you wanted to travel there, this is a perfect time.
0: (laughs) Sure is. Visit the Freud Museum and all of that. (laughs)
1: Spanish Riding School. I'm a horse person.
0: Oh, there you go. There Mm -hmm. you go. And lastly, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury?
1: I think hope is the most important thing. I think it's important to recognize that you have, you are more than your self-injury, okay? Self-injury is just a coping strategy. And that means that once you understand and can have some help in understanding what you're coping with and what are healthier coping strategies, you might know what are healthier coping strategies, but you don't know how to get there. Reach out to, there are, Community mental health centers, their mental health centers. And now most of them, as I said, do know dialectical behavior therapy. They can, you know, help you understand how to do that. You don't have to go back into your childhood if you don't want to. It's really something that just can help you change the way you think about things. You can't change what happened, but you can change the way you think and you feel about them so there is definite help out there you don't have to suffer alone and even if you have a ton of friends who know you're self-injuring they don't know how to help you but there are people out there who do so you have so much to offer and so much to give and this is something that just zaps your energy it zaps all your emotional energy just trying to stay okay so my heart goes out to you but just know there's help out there
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Later, for joining us on the podcast, sharing all about safe alternatives and the evolution of treatment and having you as probably one of the people in the Hall of Fame of Self-Injury Clinical Work (laughs) and Research is, is such an honor. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And I'm so glad we got you.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this time.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. We're entering a new year and we're giving away Dr. Later's book at the end of January. To enter the drawing, write a positive review on any podcast platform and give us a five-star rating, one entry per podcast platform screenshot your review and rating and message it to me on Instagram or Twitter by Tuesday, January 31st at Doc Wester's. If you've already done this, thank you. You're not disqualified from this giveaway. You can still participate by telling a friend and having them write a positive review and give a five-star rating, screenshotting it, and messaging it to me. You'll both be entered to win. Thank you for spreading the word about this podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Wester's. For all things self-injury, follow I Triple S on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.